not a conflict, but a war. Whatever is happening in Ukraine is influencing every single country. We become refugees not from our will. This virus changed not only my life, but the life of the whole Ukraine. Welcome to True Humanitarian. I'm Lars Peter Nissen. And I'm Yulia Chikolba. And today we are recording our second episode out of four. Yes, Yulia, last time was the first uh, time we ever worked together. And maybe I'll start by asking you, what? how did you feel about episode one? Uh, I enjoyed that, our discussion, actually. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's very confusing to me, to be honest, to wear these two hats. One is uh, as a humanitarian, international humanitarian worker, who I've been for some time now. And another one is Ukrainian, um, like truly dedicated Ukrainian citizen. And it's like sometimes I, what I heard from, from our uh, published already recordings, and sometimes we for me is humanitarian, sometimes we for me is Ukrainians. So it, it is confusing. And I think this is something that I have to acknowledge and, and deal with. Yeah, I can imagine that must be quite difficult. Uh, I also think that is one of the real strengths of having you on this show, that you bring in those two perspectives, and it is sometimes in the tension between them that the really interesting discussions actually occur. So I hope we can continue to explore that tension between the two Yulias, if you want, Yulia, the international humanitarian worker, and Yulia, the Ukrainian. I think it came out very clearly in episode one, where we discussed uh, the humanitarian principles, and Maybe I can ask you, for, for you, what, what was the most important things we talked about in episode one? I think like the whole episode was uh, kind of, the main point of it was, was a neutrality issue. Because when we are talking about humanitarian principles, we, we don't really disagree about humanity, impartiality. We didn't really talk much about independence. Uh, but neutrality is something that strikes out for me personally, as both humanitarian worker and uh, and Ukrainian, uh, but also I think we have um, quite difficult, di- different, quite different visions and 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 ideas of neutrality and its relevance and its applicability. And I think maybe the the different springs from the different positioning we have, right? Because I mean, for me, my overriding concern, of course, is that we don't dilute humanitarian action, that we don't lose the strength of it, which is this ability to to access populations in need and, and to do things that nobody else can do. And and of course, my, my concern, if we give up on neutrality, would be that, that we dilute that. Uh, and if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is, hey, it doesn't work anyway, so why are we talking about this neutrality? Yeah, in, in a sense, I, I think my position is very uh, clear that neutrality is an operational principle for, for the access, for facilitating the delivery of aid. Um, in the Ukrainian context, I believe that so far it doesn't really work. Therefore, we have to rethink and reassess it. It's such an important discussion, and I'm sure we will return to it also in this episode. But where we will begin today is by looking more at humanitarian action in Ukraine, what actually happens. And Julia, maybe let's begin with you. Let's go back to 2014. What did you do when the first invasion happened? Um, yeah, I, I think my story is like very, um, it's quite similar in the beginning to the millions of Ukrainians who got into activism back then. Um, so I was a children coach back, back in 2014 in my hometown in Dnipro. 
And uh, when the first invasion happened, like we had a massive flow of, of um, injured soldiers, injured civilians to the hospitals in Dnipro. And we already had our like a tiny group of uh, people, tiny group of friends who, who did some small symbolic uh, gestures. We put this uh, blue and yellow ribbons on the bridge. Uh, we were going to the protests and so on and so forth. And this network quickly uh, tried, turned into something that, some force that basically tried to help. We didn't know how, we didn't know what to do. So the obvious choice was a hospital. And I was volunteering in a hospital literally by hand, like, uh, you know, sorting the aids that people were bringing, like the grannies who were living nearby the hospitals were just baking some uh, pastries for the soldiers who were injured there. So we were sorting, delivering, um, just really simple, simple help by hand. Um, of course, like later on, after a couple of years in 2016, I joined the International Humanitarian Organization in Donbass, uh, and I went actually to the eastern Ukraine to, to the conflict zone at that time. Um, I was working in humanitarian mine action, which I'm still doing now, uh, for many years, uh, so mainly educating uh, people about explosive risks uh, in, the, in the conflict zone. So yeah, and later on, it was um, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, uh, different contexts, different countries, different organizations. So when the war actually started, I was in uh, Damascus, um, woke up to the explosions and, uh, and yeah, and, and decided that I need to come back home. So like uh, shortly after I joined, I joined organization in Ukraine where I'm working now. That's quite a journey, Julia, going from being an activist back in 14, working in different functions at home, then going out to some really tough context for a couple of years, only to come back when your own country ends up in, 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 in a similar situation. You spoke about a group of friends who together started with activism back in 2014. The journey you've just described for yourself, is that typical for that group? What happened to the rest of them? Actually not. I think I am the only one who became a, a I don't know if, if you can call it, but so-called professional humanitarian worker who is actually getting salary out of it. Um, everyone else either stayed volunteering in their free time or just support with money and, and finance. Like a lot of Ukrainians you would see who are donating massive, massive uh, percentage of their salaries, like every month to certain people they trust. And a lot of these people, um, a lot of these people are continuing their volunteering work. And I think one of the best examples of these people that I can think about is Anastasia. Uh, she is, um, she's an old friend and uh, and also she's a she's a volunteer i can't even call her humanitarian volunteer but uh, maybe let's let's listen to her story i'm volunteer since uh, 2014 and uh, i'm as i like to say i'm random master just random person and uh, I help mostly Ukrainian army because I guess it's the most important. If you help our army, you have less problems with civilian people. And sometimes also I help civilian people because it's important too and because I can. You said random. What What is random, Nastya? <laughs> Just any kind of Ukrainian woman, any Ukrainian woman can be such Nastya as me. I have no some special um, special knowledges. I have no some special uh, skills. Now I have, but uh, when it started, no. 
I was just random, random philologist. And how how did it start? We started from helping George people, injured soldiers. After we had a lot of friends, uh, which uh, were in army, and uh, we helped uh, some equipment, uh, some some different stuff. Sometimes it was just uh, some delicious food. <laughs> Sometimes it was just equipment. Uh, it was really a lot of different things a lot of different things and this help it's very big specter from i need to call to some some rock person or i need to ask someone's or i need to just put a big bag and uh, go with this big bag to the post it's really very different work where do you get money it's funny because i only ask people people who knows me because uh, I have a lot of different friends and uh, I'm a kind of public person because I'm uh, a teacher and I have uh, many people which were my students or my colleagues which knows me, uh, which know me, sorry. And uh, it's just, I don't know how does it work, honestly. I have no idea, but it works and it's okay for me. I just uh, write on my Facebook and Instagram page, uh, people, we need money, a lot of money, people, please, and people help us. And really, it looks like magic, but it's not. It's I guess it's just work. If you work year by year, if you do it and do it again, and if you do it any time, uh, have you have you good mood, have you bad mood, are you tired or something like this, it, it doesn't matter. You just do it every day. And when people see it, people help you. I have to say that the interview with Anastasia really made an impression on me. And I have this strange thought that in a sense, the special thing about her is that there's nothing special about her. As she says herself, I'm just a random person. And I think the really powerful implication of that is that there are probably thousands of Anastasias across Ukraine. And so when you listen to her and hear the things she does, the 14 cars that she has bought for her military unit, the books she brings to the, the front line, you are actually listening to thousands of voices like that. And you have to imagine the efforts being multiplied by a thousand, which makes it not a small thing, but a massive thing. Yeah, I agree. I think like um, Anastasia is like a good illustration. And also, to be honest, our common story is a good illustration of the of this benefits that Ukrainians have, like from a very unfortunate that invasion that happened in 2014. It didn't happen in 2022. So these networks that were formed in 2014, and they were like, strengthening and they were like growing and developing their expertise and experience were remobilized in 2022. And uh, I think that's a big benefit of, of the Ukrainian society is that we have this history, we have this expertise. I, I don't know many contexts that would probably match this so fast and so quickly.
Yeah, I, I like the way she spoke about magic. It's like magic, it just happens organically. And I think, as you say, that that is the product of all these years of hard work. And she actually says that herself also. This is not magic. It's because I do it even though I don't feel like it. I do it every day. I do it all the time. It's this commitment that builds the trust in her as a person, which is why she can raise the money and help people. I would like to move on to the second part of the interview and reflect on the really interesting question. If you have a thousand Anastasias, how does that interface with a big aid machine coming in from the outside? And I think the second clip we'll play will, will tell us something about that. I don't have some organization, uh, but I have some friends which do the same. And I have my... Uh, I have soldiers which I help, uh, like some part of so I don't know how to say it, Pedrozdil. Uh, military unit. I have some military units which I help, and uh, my friends have their military units, and sometimes we help each other to help their military units, and it's like, I don't know, I'm like spider, <laughs> which is always thinking. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, where do I can uh, take some money or some stuff or uh, something like that, and where I can give something? The same people which help military unions, uh, the same people uh, help uh, civilian people. And uh, when it was uh, deoccupied uh, the city Snigurivka, Mikolaev region, uh, when it was uh, something about rumors about this, uh, we were thinking. Hmm, let's go there. And it was just a joke. Let's go there. Okay, let's go. And uh, we took uh, many uh, goods, many products, many clothes, many medicine, a lot of medicine. And uh, my task is also to sort uh, meds and give uh, people, civilian people. Uh, and we just went. We just uh, took, I don't know, four cars and uh, went to the Snehurivka. It was about about a week after the de- occupation. And it was <laughs> a very, um, very funny case uh, when we were in a city which is close to Snehurivka, but it wasn't occupied. And we saw the ri- Red Cross uh, car, big car. And we were thinking like, oh, we should go to this car. But no, this car just stopped <laughs> and we went uh, to, to Snehurevka. It was so many mines in the city. It was so dangerous, honestly, and we were a bit crazy. Maybe not a bit, we were crazy. Uh, and uh, it, it was dangerous uh, because um, even soldiers tell us that it's only your responsibility. Will you alive or not? We say, okay, okay, okay. Uh, but it was interesting and we were so needed here. And Nastya, you saw the Red Cross and um, you're yourself from, from the city where like a lot of humanitarian organizations are working. Did you ever try to reach out or were in touch with them or they were in touch with you? I never contact with Red Cross or something like that so big. But uh, with smaller organization, yes, I have I had some contacts, but it's always a story about so many times. We had interview, few interviews when uh, we uh, 
should show who we are, what are we doing, and so on. And I was speaking about my uh, interesting trips to the front line. And uh, we know that we will have money uh, for products and for books, which is very important for me. For Ukrainian books, and we will go to the Mykolaiv or Kherson region with this. But it was uh, last year, it was December, first interview. Now it's February, and I don't know for sure when do I have this help for people. They were looking at me and trying to understand, am I cheating? Am I cheating? It's okay. It's okay uh, for me, and uh, if we need some proofs, it's okay. But um, I don't know, maybe now they were so emotional I feel less emotions since uh, last year. And they were so emotional now. They were, were so worried about Ukraine. So I was wanted to ask uh, people, if you're so emotional, maybe we will do this more quickly. <laughs> maybe it will spend less time. <laughs> because <laughs> now when you have uh, such sad emotions, uh, we need to help, sorry. Yeah, sometimes I feel like uh, I am an actor and this is kind of TV show in real life just for civilized world. They are looking like, uh, nice show, Ukraine. Let's watch uh, some Ukrainian news or something like that. It's just under my, my feeling, not, not even opinion, it's just feeling, but it's sad to feel it. So as Nastya said, I think it's 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 a lot about this kind of um, disconnect uh, between the big humanitarian machines, even those who are um, traditionally fairly has have fairly high risk appetite with with Nastya's and individual volunteers who don't have the whole system of duty of care, who sometimes behave fairly reckless, I must say. Um, but but they are in the right place in the right time, and time here is really critical. Yeah, there's so many layers in in this clip. Firstly, I, I just can't get away from the price that Anastasia pays or chooses to pay because I think she really walks into this with very open eyes, recognizing the price she's paying. But it's it's painful to be honest to to hear hear that part of the story. And then on the other side, this disconnect between on one side, between on one side the Red Cross saying, no, we can't go there, that we don't have enough security uh, guarantees to, to be able to go here. She goes there, even the army tells her, hey, you're on your own, this is not safe, but she does it. And, and then the other side of the coin, which is this due diligence, I can imagine these phone calls over months talking about whether they have the capacity to do A, B, or C, and people getting emotional. And she's basically saying, hey, guys, this is, you're crying on my behalf here. Could we speed up a little bit? Right? That, that is a very powerful expression of the disconnect between the thousands of anesthesias and big aid. I think it's a very difficult issue, to be honest, because we all know that accountability is important and we all know that 
Apart from uh, just delivering fast aid, uh, we do want to have it, first of all, make sure that it doesn't uh, doesn't cause any negative consequence, right? But also we have to we have to ensure that it goes to the right people in the right place. But also, like this, the the time the time is uh, is is long, <laughs> and uh, Ukrainians just just can't wait. Uh, people just can't afford not to eat for like three months while organizations are doing their due diligence. You know, um, people can't wait for three months while organizations would have uh, guaranteed security access and secure access to these areas. Like when we are coming back to the previous episode and to- talking about this. People, humanitarian aid helping people who are falling through the cracks, that's exactly the people who are falling through the cracks, right? That's exactly there are people that are not assisted by government for certain reason, for very obvious reason, because the government also, you know, has their due diligence and has their like security processes and so on and so forth. And this individual, Nastya, what strikes to me that when she's talking about the long due diligence process, she is not asking for $100,000. Like their budgets are really, really low and it still takes so much time. Yeah, I think this is one of these problems where we can all see that the way it's working is that it's not working. It's clear that we have a problem. It is much harder to find a solution to it. And I I think it's really important to to have quite a nuanced understanding of, of where it is we get stuck. And to add to our understanding of this whole disconnect or the gap between the international and the national actors, I would like to play a conversation I had with Rasmus Stur, who is the Secretary General of CARE Denmark. And let's just hear what Rasmus said about how they started up their operations in Ukraine. Our, our starting point was um, untraditional in the sense that we didn't have a presence in Ukraine. Um, whereas here we are in 100 countries uh, all over the world. Uh, traditionally, when we respond, we are already there present and, and it's an ongoing conflict or it's uh, that, with that, that sort of uh, reaches another peak or it's a conflict in a neighboring country or region or whatnot. In this case, we had to start from scratch. So we knew, of course, from the onset that we were extremely dependent on local capacity and local knowledge. So this was also our starting point. Uh, who's there on the ground doing something that is somewhat similar to the role that we would want to do? How do we connect with them? How do we learn from them? And how can we also work with them? Um, so we started, uh, I mean, very simple through personal networks. Who knows someone inside Ukraine? Who knows someone who knows someone who works for an NGO or a civil society organization of sorts? And actually, through our own networks, we, we were able to identify sort of two or three people that we could then reach out to. And that was then the starting point to send in some, a, a very small team of, of two colleagues uh, who could meet up with these new contacts that we had established. Um, and then slowly, you know, the discussion started and the cooperation started and then the snowball sort of uh, rolled on from there. So this network-based way of operating how long did that take? When did you get the first operation off the ground? It's actually one of the things that I'm that I'm quite proud of that uh, that we were that we were very quick uh, to send in the team. Uh, we were there in March already uh, with two people in in uh, in Lviv uh, meeting with uh, with our new 
as it turned out, our new partners. Uh, we didn't know that in advance. Uh, of course, we've had plenty of email exchange back and forth, and we researched each other, and these were very capable uh, organizations, IRF being one of them, a Ukrainian foundation who's used to dispersing grants to other civil society organizations in Ukraine. So a very interesting partner for us who could help us uh, reach other civil society organizations in Ukraine. So you come in in March, you identify your new partners, And then when does money actually begin to flow? Yeah, and this is then one of the things that I'm uh, less proud of, uh, honestly, that um, we we were there in March. Uh, we were pretty, I mean, ready, both parties to sign the contract on the on the second day when we, after we've met. Um, but, uh, but money came only uh, months later. Um, and mainly due to um, to some of our own due diligence uh, measures, um, we had to ask uh, RIF to undergo and read through and accept uh, our due diligence uh, principles that we need to because of our back donors and where the money is coming from. Um, and for 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 them in their situation um, with. Um, You know their brothers and sisters uh, at the front line and 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 working hard every day to get the aid out and so on. This this was not a top priority for them. Reading through and signing off on on our tons of papers. No, I would hope not. And 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 we were unhappy about it as well. To what extent were the humanitarian principles, in particular neutrality, on your mind as you positioned yourself in this operation? The the issue of neutrality was. Uh, was extremely important. Um, we recognized <clears throat> that um, that this was also uh, impossible with uh, with our national partners. Uh, we had the discussion with them, of course. Um, we uh, made sure that uh, that they were clear on where we were coming from and where our money uh, was going and where it wasn't going. Uh, but no doubt. Many of our partners were also aiding the Ukrainian uh, military and saying they are. I mean, these guys are, are hungry as well. And uh, right now, in in my perspective, uh, they are defending uh, my livelihood. They are defending my family, and I have a very strong interest in in supporting them. So that's what we do. Also, as civil society, as local civil society organizations. But how about helping people? who may be on the Russian side in this conflict. Did you also have that conversation with them? We also had that conversation on on aiding those who need aid, basically, regardless of of, of, of where they are on, on, on the front line. That wasn't really sort of where where the, the, the big problem was for them. There was some kind of sympathy there in understanding that principle, but it was the, the more difficult bit was on not being able to help and aid the boys and men uh, who did the service for the Ukrainian armed forces. And why on earth we couldn't do food distributions and blankets and and so on um, in in their favor. From an NGO perspective, what we often complain about, at least, or which, not complain only, but which is a real <laughs> concern, is that um, our ability to move is um, tied up in and restricted by donor financing. And that we are limited in our lack of unrestricted funding. That 
is more flexible and, and enables us to do the things that we would like to do in the way that we would like to do them. Uh, it varies, of course, between agencies. Some have more than others. Uh, but in this particular case, unrestricted financing was available. Uh, so there were options to work um, more or less independent of the institutional donor funding in, in ways that did not need sort of the, the necessary or, or not the necessary, but the regular or the normal sort of uh, approval mechanisms and control mechanisms and so on where we were accountable and responsible, of course, to the private uh, contributions from ordinary citizens more than the institutional donors. Um, but sort of reflecting, did we capitalize then on that new level of, of freedom in, in our response or not? And, um, and I don't think we did. I really appreciate this conversation uh, with Rasmus because I think it's very unique when when the representative of the funding organization is actually fairly critical about uh, themselves and very honest about the, the the shortcomings of the process and very honest about inability to react as fast as they should. Um, I think like the part which 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 kind of was the most prominent for me is this like three months due diligence process uh, and like Ukrainians what I said before Ukrainians just can't wait. I think the strength of the interview is that that it shows you also the honesty and genuine concern there is from the organizations of of this lack of performance and that it is not for lack of wanting to to change things. The real point for me around the due diligence is that, as Rasmus says, often we complain as INGOs that donors clamp all these anti-terror, anti-corruption, whatever constraints on us. But actually, in this case, we are sitting on a mountain of money collected from the public, which is far more flexible and where we could have taken risks and we didn't. I think that is just such a depressing conclusion to come to that actually we we had that space and we didn't take it. Yeah, you know what what strike out for me is like a due diligence part. Um, because like what, what I was thinking while you were talking actually, like we are much more focused on the process rather than the result in this case. And we keep talking about changing this mindset. But when you look at the due diligence process itself, right, it all starts with uh, one page to, you know, to cover the basic risks to make sure that we are not doing harm. And then what, like, uh, in other contexts, you have one problems in, like, one country, another problems in another country, and then you cover all the, you, you cover your back in all possible ways, but, you know, like, your due diligence form becomes this, like, 25 pages document, which nobody really, which doesn't really make you, your decision any easier at all. So, um, and of course, you're losing the agility and then the flexibility and the, and the time that is needed so much in this situation. Yeah, I have a friend who describes this as uh, processes where intelligence is averaged and stupidity is cumulative. So no matter how bright a person that comes into the process, it doesn't really matter because that person's intelligence is just average out with anybody else. But just one idiot on board will add to the stupidity and that never goes away. And I think this is, of course, a slightly provocative way of describing it, but there's a lot of truth to that dynamic, that once we add something to this whole framework, we can't take it away. And then it just 
ends up being a, a straitjacket that nobody meant to create, but that we have created ourselves. Look, and I think like uh, a lot of this could have been resolved if we constantly question ourselves why exactly we are doing what's for. But uh, what what we see now is that, especially in Ukraine, you will have a surge of uh, of a short term coming for like one month humanitarians from all over the world. And the only they they don't they don't question they just apply what they used in other contexts and if it doesn't work they blame whatever Ukrainian government local partners um, you know war but uh, they never actually take an effort to reassess and to rethink why we are doing that why do we have this three months due diligence form what happens if the only person who is in charge of due diligence form is on leave or something you know so like. We we have to start questioning a bit further on like a second level of um, of questions. It is a difficult discussion because my experience is, and I'm sure yours as well, of working internationally, is that that a lot of the people you meet in this industry, if you want, are truly committed, are really burning to make the world a better place and to help people who are falling through the cracks. That's why they joined the business. And these people will take risks. They will push the envelope. They will cross lines that sometimes I wouldn't cross on their own behalf. But the minute you're dealing with fiduciary risks, the minute you're dealing with somebody else's money and you're taking risk on somebody else's behalf, then a whole different dynamic steps in and all these regulations and frameworks come in. And that makes it really difficult to actually exercise the agency that a lot of us wish we had. And you can almost hear it in Rasmus's voice, right? I, I think another part of the Rasmus conversation, which was very interesting, is um, the striking difference of his attitude and his organization attitude to neutrality issue in contrast with uh, Anastasia. And uh, and I see the struggle uh, that, that they experienced with their uh, local partners and they see the position of Anastasia and, and I'm wondering how, how would you suggest to deal with it? Yeah, that was really interesting. I, I really liked the way he described it. And what I hear him saying is that the Ukrainian partners say, yes, we will be impartial. We will help people who need it. Of course, we will help people who need it. Also, if they're not on the same side. But you cannot ask us to be neutral if that means we cannot help our brothers and sisters who are fighting for our freedom. How, how, can, how can we not feed them? They are also hungry. And that's where there's a very strong parallel to what Anastasia said. There's, there's just no distinction between books for children or cars for soldiers. She does both. And for her, it is the same project. It is her defending the Ukraine she loves. I think also the difference, the neutrality itself, is, is, is a bit of an artificial construct. Because for people in Ukraine, it's very organic to, to help to end the war and to help to end suffering that is caused by the war. And for them to help to end suffering is helping both an army and the combatants and military and military effort in general and civilians who are falling through the cracks. You know, Julia, in the beginning, you spoke about the difficulty of the two hats uh, that you wear. And and I think for me, it's it's also difficult, right? Because it's different for me to have this conversation with somebody who's not just a humanitarian, but also a Ukrainian. Because my answer to what you just said would be something along the lines of, the reason we do this is because humanitarian aid is a specific tool in the toolbox. And one way we keep that tool sharp 
is by making sure that it does not get sucked into politics and military action. And that is a very difficult thing to, to, to ensure. I, when I worked in Afghanistan 20 years ago with the ICSE, it was so clear how strong the pressure was from all the military actors around us to somehow instrumentalize the work of the humanitarians. And there was a lot of pushback from our side to make sure that we did not get mixed up in what was a military nation building, whatever, stabilization, whatever you want to call that effort. It sure wasn't humanitarian. And we had to somehow be able to differentiate from that in order to be able to operate. And in a sense, what we have to do is try to think ahead two, three years from now, where things may look very different and where there may be a different power relation between the governments. The military may be in a different position. How do we position the humanitarian project in the future? And how do we make sure that what we do today doesn't dilute our ability to operate in the future? It's, it's also that perspective. But I'll be honest with you, it's really difficult for me to actually say this to you because I know you're also wearing a Ukrainian hat. Yeah, I think I agree with the toolbox approach. The only uh, thing that I, I, I'm not quite convinced that humanitarian aid, all of it, should be uh, neutral in the, in the nature to be part of this toolbox. Um, because like we, we had a long discussion about the perception, right? And perception of neutrality. And yes, we are thinking about future. But at the same time, for, for effective aid right now in Ukraine, here and now, you might have to accept that the aid distributors, that the local providers would not be as neutral as you want them to be. And my problem with a toolbox is that the humanitarian funding, all of it is coming to this like neutral side of the spectrum. So it's all coming to, to the actors who do claim neutrality because that's how humanitarian funding works. And what is what is left for these individual actors like Anastasia? Like, uh, yes, they are not neutral. They, they are not going to be neutral. A lot of them like survive on crowdfunding among Ukrainians. But at the same time, the big aid is focusing on this small, small minority of the international organizations comparing to, you know, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian organizations local. So they are focusing on this small minority, which is receiving all the aid. And nothing is left for those who are doing it in a different way. Julia, let's put the neutrality discussion aside. I don't think that that is actually our main issue here, because again and again, what we hear and what we actually talk about is all the institutional barriers, the fiduciary controls that needs to be in place, the due diligence, whatever. And I'd like to play for you a clip that uh, comes from an episode of Humanitarian I did uh, half a year ago. It's with a friend and colleague of mine called Louis Seider. Louis has worked in this sector for a long time. He's very experienced. Louis and I spoke about his work with trying to connect a small grassroots initiative, not unlike that of Anastasia's, to the formal humanitarian system. Now, remember, Lewis is somebody who knows this system inside out. And yet, in spite of that, this was his experience of trying to engage with Big Eight, as we called it on the episode. Here's the story, I guess. Uh, like many of us, I've been um, working a bit on Ukraine. Uh, I have a friend of a friend introduced me to a Ukrainian diaspora um, organization individual who's been raising money for medical supplies. Um, and I guess to what you can only really describe as an, a, a struggle for the words a little bit when I'm trying to explain this, but civil society, volunteer, activist groups, I think 
we're all sufficiently familiar with the situation in Ukraine, not not obviously the military situation, but in terms of, I guess you can call it a mass mobilization. It, it feels like the whole of Ukrainian society is mobilized for the war effort, but also to help their neighbors. And so you have the, the emergence of these civil society volunteer activist groups. They're, they're, they're um, typically... Uh, They've got a warehouse. They've got a few cars. They're 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 collecting relief supplies and 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 they're taking them to their elderly neighbours or young families or the infirm. Um, and they're also uh, um, collecting for hospitals and 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 helping move those supplies around. Um, some in collaboration, obviously, with the authorities and the Ministry of Health, but um, some just as 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 these sort of quite local or very local efforts. Um, so anyway, my my colleague, uh, now friend, uh, collaborator, who was raising resources for these medical supplies, um, was trying to work out how she could also connect these groups to more formal aid organizations. And I said, of course, um, rather naively, yeah, of course, that's what I do. Um, I'll help you. You start off very naively. Yeah, of course I can do that. Yeah. So you phone a few mates and you send some emails. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm chuckling to myself as you describe that, that tsunami of unsolicited donations and being on the other side, because I reached out to a good friend of mine in UNHCR who's, who's, who's an absolutely great person and a fantastic thinker and this individual had been up until very recently in in Poland on the border, and uh, and and they laughed at me and said, "Oh, you're one of those nutters now, aren't, aren't, are you?" Um, and of course, I am a little bit. Um, so yeah, the the experience of being on the other side has been quite sobering, uh, as you might imagine, um, because I went down the rabbit hole thinking it'd be quite easy. And I'm still going down the rabbit hole, and we still haven't really managed to connect big aid to little aid. And um, I even went to, and uh, you know, this is how I this is how I became the rogue humanitarian. I even went to 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 Poland on the border to Zhezhov. Um, it's very easy to jump on a plane on on a plane from Gatwick near near near, near to where I live and go to Krakow um, and went to the coordination meetings and felt awkward. Um, not being one of the branded entities at the coordination meetings and trying to explain what we were doing uh, and and that we didn't have this formal structure, but actually we did have all of these willing people with uh, you know with their own vehicles and 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 their own time and and passion and goodwill. Um, and I'm still struggling with making the connection, if I'm honest. What's so fascinating about Ukraine is we've got these this highly educated population, really capable. Um, they're they're mobilised at the moment, at least with a with a sort of solidarity ethic, which means that they're helping each other, helping you know their neighbours, and they'll do it with us or without us. They'll do it with big aid or they'll do it without big aid. And big aid may be left with an embarrassing surfeit of resources in the bank account because little aid has found other ways to organise themselves. But they're also doing it with social media. They are just organizing themselves with their Telegram channels, with WhatsApp groups. They're doing it in real time. And maybe that's a vision of the future where we have supply pipelines and then we have dynamic distribution systems that are somehow facilitated by the tech that we've all been 
pushing away in the humanitarian sector and saying that it's a hammer looking for a nail. And mostly it is. But maybe it's time has come of age. Maybe we can leapfrog the landline. So what I understood from this part and our previous uh, pieces, that there is an evident and a huge existing gap between humanitarian big aid and the hundreds of thousands of Nastas and, and, and Louis friends. Um, what we see from the statistics that uh, in Ukraine you would have, I think, around 100,000 uh, national, different type of national organizations registered with the government. 100,000. And out of this 100,000, only 30-something are eligible partners of the hum Ukrainian Humanitarian Fund. Like, only 30 are good enough out of 100,000? I don't understand why, and I probably can't accept it. The one thing that's clear to me is that if Lewis can't do it, I don't think anybody can. Lewis is very good at what he does. He knows the system inside out. And we called the episode with Lewis Roke, because when I spoke to a couple of my colleagues in Ukraine about Lewis, uh, the answer was, oh, you mean the Roke humanitarian? And even though these people didn't know him, they had heard about this nutter. And it tells you a lot about what the world looks like from inside the echo chamber and how difficult it is to overcome these barriers. I'm really struggling to understand the reason behind it. Because, like, uh, I have literally much more, many more questions than, than, than answers. Why, why is it happening? Is it because people are changing too fast? Is it because uh, people are bringing in their experiences which are not quite relevant in the Ukrainian context? Is it because of the huge flow of humanitarian organizations that are new to the country and didn't really look at the context carefully and just come, came, you know, bluntly with whatever they were doing in, in other parts of the world? I, I, I really, I'm really struggling to understand the reason. I don't know, Julia, maybe it's all of the above. What I do know is that you and I are basically very optimistic people and that we don't want to get sucked into a big black hole of just feeling that everything is hopeless. So I think in terms of trying to answer why the disconnect is there, let's just leave it for now and say it's obviously there and it's complex why it happens. And instead of digging deeper, let's go and try to have a look at what is happening in this gap between the formal system and the grassroots. Let's go on a safari in the new humanitarian ecosystem and see what kind of new ideas and organizations pop up to try to address this gap that we all can see is there. Yeah, I think it's it's more than organizations popping up. I think that there are difficult, different mechanisms of the delivery of humanitarian aid and the, and. All of us, and now I have all my hats on as a like donor community, humanitarian community, uh, international community, um, can do a bit more and, and can learn from some examples that, that, that are there in Ukraine. Excellent, Julia. I very much look forward to our little uh, excursion, safari in the humanitarian ecosystem next week. Yeah, Lars Peter, looking forward to our chats next week. This episode was produced with support from Care Denmark. Our producer is Dennis Kelsen. Research by Caroline Thorsen. And our sound engineer is Agustin Libertorde. If you like the show, let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you really, really like the show, why don't you give us a donation through our website, truemanitarian.org, where we have a PayPal link.